This is the Author Archive podcast. Today, Giles Milton, who is a splendid writer of popular history. I first came across him when his first book came out, Nathaniel's Nutmeg. But this is a conversation about a book called Big Chief Elizabeth. It was last published in 2011, subtitled How England's Adventurers Gambled and Won the New World. And it talks about the first settlement being set up in North America years before the Mayflower. So when I talked to Giles, I asked him, well, who was the visionary? Who was the force behind this? Sir Walter Raleigh, then plain Walter Raleigh, who had long dreamed of, of planting a hundred or more settlers on the shores of North America, a massive undertaking that had been tried before him, um, but always failed. I mean, suppose, trying to think of it now, I was trying to think what it would have felt like. It's like sending men to the moon, isn't it? It's a, it's, it's a vast undertaking. Yeah, it's almost impossible to conceive nowadays just how hard it was. What they were trying to do, in effect, was transplant an Elizabethan village across the North Atlantic and planted on the soil there. Um, that involved shipping out absolutely everything they needed for the hundred or so settlers and all their food supplies for um, at least a year because they would arrive with no fresh, fresh vegetables and everything. They had to survive somehow, so they had to calculate the seeds they needed to take, the livestock, everything. A massive undertaking. And also, I mean, just the, just the drudge of getting across the North Atlantic. I mean, at one point, people are saying, shall we go, oh, no, 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 I don't want to go on those boats again. I mean, it was horrendous. Yeah, I mean, the ships were just awful. Life on board was terrible. There was dysentery, there was scurvy, there were the most appalling storms they got caught in. And, of course, there was the Spanish. They had to sail through the Caribbean. That was the most logical route to follow the winds. But the Caribbean meant the risk of attack by the Spanish and um, they frequently did come under fire and they certainly um, they initiated battles themselves as well. And what did they know of um, the native inhabitants? They knew very little um, at all. There were vague reports of what the native Indians as they called them um, were like um, but Raleigh realised that his problem was knowing very little about the people who lived there, the indigenous population. So he had this rather brilliant idea of sending a reconnaissance vessel across the North Atlantic, capturing one of these Indian savages, bringing him back to London, teaching him English, to and then learning everything he could about North America and its people. And in fact, he brought back two. He brought back two, he did. One called Mantio and one called Wanchis. And um, while Mantio um, became something of an Anglophile and loved his time in England, Wan Chi's became a bitter enemy. And what's astonishing is, you know, you tend to think of modern-day intellectual heroes and you tend to think, gosh, we're bright. But there's a guy who appears here who learns from Mantio his language. Mm. Um, and he comes over as a... Rem I've forgotten his name just temporarily, but he comes over as a remarkable character. Yeah, Thomas Harriet, this is. Um, one of the great, all-time great Elizabethans in my book. Um, he was a brilliant mathematician, um, brilliant scientist. And Riley, um, who was a friend of his, thought that he was the man who would be able to um, uncode this Algonquian language. And he was set to task, um, chatting with Mantio, speaking to him every day trying to unravel his language, which he did. He, he actually produced an English Algonquian dictionary. An amazing feat. 
This is so astonishing. And um, what would happen to um, Mantio here? You know, we're talking in London. Mantio, when he came here, must have thought, my gosh, I mean, this must have been like the moon to him. Yeah, I mean, he, he'd never seen anything, any ship bigger than a canoe before the English ships arrived in America. He'd never seen any building bigger than a, a, a wattle hut. He arrived in London. Um, Elizabethan London was a splendid place, and Raleigh's residence, Durham House, an enormous palace on the Thames, must have taken his breath away. It really must. Um, Raleigh also was a great publicist, great spin doctor, um, and he realised that to have uh, a savage walking around London in his breechcloth and feathers and tattoos was a marvellous advertisement for North America. So he kept Mantio in his costume for, for at least for the first few weeks. Um, so, I mean, Mantio must have been stared at by half of London as he walked through the streets. And at the back of this, you get the rise and rise and rise of um, Walter Raleigh. Because it just seems that um, Elizabeth fancied him. Raleigh was a, a really shrewd guy, and um, I think he's fascinating for, for, for nowadays because he really was a self-made man. He, he rose from very humble beginnings, um, a far, little rented Devon farmhouse, to become the glittering centrepiece of the Elizabethan court. And um, he did it by his sheer exuberance and... and um, his charm, really. This, this traditional story that everyone knows about Raleigh is him spreading his cloak across a puddle so that Queen Elizabeth could walk through. Um, true or not, no one knows. It's become part of the legend about Raleigh. But I've included it in the book because I think it somehow summarises his extravagance, his, his way of being that so captured Elizabeth I. Now, if you've got an enterprise, you have to go around internet stuff being a prime example, to get the backing of venture capitalists. Presumably, they, it, Raleigh had to find some venture capital in order to go off and make his colony. Yeah, Raleigh was, um, by this point, he was wealthy. The Queen had showered him with gifts. But he needed um, an enormous amount of money to do what he was trying to do. So he hit on a rather um, brilliant idea of selling off vast estates in America, just saying, you can have a million acres, you can have two million acres. And he soon found that um, rich entrepreneurs in London, of which there were many, came beating a path to his door, saying, well, yeah, I wouldn't mind uh, a million acres of North America, having no idea what was there, and probably even less idea that it, this land was actually already inhabited by the um, native population. They took these estates. But was there a sort of arrogance that if, if, if there were people there already, it didn't really matter? Largely, yes. Um, Sir Walter's half-brother, who had tried to set up a colony before Walter, he, his attitude towards the native population was just appalling. He, he'd learned his lessons um, in Ireland, where it was better to kill the natives than to live alongside them. Um, Raleigh, again, why I'm interested in Raleigh, was very different. He said that we have to try and coexist alongside these, the native Indians and set out a very, very harsh code of conduct for his would-be colonists, um, how they were to behave. And was the thought that when they got there, the colonists would find riches, gold, jewels? I think there was a real naivety on the part of many of them. They expected to land and be plucking gold nuggets from the foreshore. They really did. And when they got there and they found there was no gold, there was no silver, there was no precious metals at all. In fact, there wasn't even any stone with which to build their houses. Um, they would deeply disillusioned. You, there's a lovely line which I remember in your book where he says what they did find, and they got quite excited about it for a while, was a vein of kaolin. Yes. So if they all got dysentery, they were all right. <laughs> they were all right, yeah. And <laughs> um, they were desperately scratching around for anything that would, that would 
bring the, uh, the riches that Raleigh wanted. I mean, this colony had to be financially viable. It had to produce wealth. Yeah. Now, this, this is a, f a fabulous bit in the book, which is highly recommended. There's about a, how many? Just over 100 men. That's right. So this is a chaste group of men looking for riches. And then we get that um, glorious idea, which is satirised by Bob Newhart on, on, on the mm -hmm. album. Hey, Walt, what do you do with it? You put it in your mouth, and then what do you do? You set fire to it. He picked up from the Indians this idea of this herb, which the Spanish were calling tobacco. That's right. As I say, they were desperate to find something that would make them money. Um, tobacco was known in Spain um, and certainly known among the Indians as having medicinal properties. So they thought, let's, let's take this thing back and let's popularise it. And Walter Raleigh, who's known as the first Englishman to smoke tobacco, that's nonsense, he wasn't. He was a man that popularised it in the Elizabethan court. He got, even got Elizabeth I to smoke it. And he put word around that this thing was brilliant for your health. It was particularly recommended for pregnant women, for children, children which yes. I think is absolutely wonderful. And it caught on. I mean, within, within a few years, the whole court was smoking this stuff. But James, after Elizabeth, he took a guinea, because presumably he took against Raleigh, but he was saying, this makes your lungs black, it's not good for you at all. Very prescient. Yes, he... he um, he was right that um, it was not good for your health. He wrote, uh, he hated Raleigh, he, he hated um, indigenous populations, native people, savages, whatever, whatever you want to call them, and um, he hated everything that went with America, um, including tobacco. And shortly after coming to the throne, he wrote a book denouncing tobacco. He raised the taxes enormously on tobacco. Yes, from, I think it was tuppence a pound or something, to six shillings and eightpence a pound yeah, or something. Yeah, absolutely. Vast. Vast. One of the reasons was political. The tobacco at that point was still coming from Spain. And it was only later in the story that they managed to cultivate enormous quantities in the English colony, which really set the colony on its feet. Where does Drake come into this story? Drake is sort of a bit part in the story. Um, while Raleigh was trying to set up his colony, Drake was, um, really was pirating his way around the North Atlantic, um, ransacking any Spanish settlement he could. And um, at one point, he heard that the colonists were in dire danger. They were about to be wiped out by the Spanish. And he sailed off and he actually had to rescue a band of colonists and bring them back to, back to England. So were there times when large numbers of colonists kind of just went missing? Well, this is the mystery of, of, one, of the, one of the great central mysteries of this story, is that the colony that Raleigh sent out in 1587, which was supposed to be the great, um, the first great colony with women and children, disappeared without trace. The governor was sent back to England because they desperately needed food supplies. He said to the colonists, if you leave this island, carve a message in the trees saying where you're going. He arrived back three years later. The Spanish Armada got in the way. He couldn't set sail for three years. He got there and he found a single word carved into the tree, which he presumed was where the colonists had gone. This was White? This was John White who not only had um, a daughter there, but also a granddaughter. That's right. His granddaughter was the first English um, child born on American soil and was named Virginia, rather poetically, in honour of Virginia, the land of the Virgin Queen. Yes, because Virginia is called Virginia because of the patronage of Queen Elizabeth. That's right, yeah. yeah. In fact, the whole of North America was, 
pretty much called Virginia, known as Virginia in England. So now, has that mystery been solved? Well, what happened to the, the lost colony, as it's called, for the next 20, 30 years, it was a mystery that really haunted England. And um, supply ships were sent out, rescue ships were sent out, um, search missions were sent out, and there was no trace of them. Um, what had happened to them? It was not until the first colonists set sail for Jamestown that um, they went in search of these colonists. They thought, if we can find these people, they will know everything about the land. They'll be able to tell us what grows, what, what the native Indians are like. So they went on a search for them. But it wasn't until about 1608 when they finally discovered what had happened to the lost colonists. And the truth was that they had been alive all along, that they had survived on their own for all those years and had only that year, just before they arrived, been massacred by the emperor of the Indians, as they called him, Powhatan, the father of Pocahontas. And this is where John Smith also enters the story. Anyone who's watched the Disney version of Pocahontas will know that John Smith was slightly dashing with a lantern jaw, a bit like Dan Dare and very blonde. Mm, yeah, he looks a marvellous <laughs> character. Um, yeah, sadly, complete fiction. Um, if you look at pictures of John Smith, contemporary pictures, Elizabethan pictures of John Smith, he had the most astonishing amount of um, bright ginger facial hair. He had moustache out here, a beard out here. He was covered in the shock of ginger hair on his head. Yeah, not at all the, uh, <laughs> the Disney portrayal. We also have the only crowning that's ever taken place, crowning of a monarch that's ever taken place in North America, don't we? Yeah, the, um, the London merchants involved in the colonisation, they were always setting the colonists the most impossible tasks, and one of which was they said, oh, why don't you crown Powhatan? That would be good to have him as our kind of sub-king uh, sub out in, in North America. So they, the colonists were sent out with a, with a cheap copper crown, um, a coronation present, which was a double bed, um, and a few other bits to tonsu him and everything, and off they set into the forest and tried to crown him. Of course, Powhatan didn't know what on earth was going on. <laughs> he wouldn't even sit still. He wouldn't sit, so he wouldn't sit down, that was the problem. They were trying to put the crown on his head and um, they couldn't reach because he was a very tall man. Two of them had to lean on his shoulders and push him down, and then one of them chucked the crown on his head and pronounced him king. Remarkable story told by Giles Milton. Big Chief Elizabeth is the book How England's Adventurers Gambled and Won the New World. Great read. This is the Author Archive Podcast. I'm David Freeman.